You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Welcome to another episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. I'm Marilyn de Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. Nice to see you again, Marilyn. Nice to see you too. We're on Q4 now of 2023. Time sure flies so fast. Yeah, it really does. It's soon. It's going to be a year since we started this podcast series. We've gone through the spring, through the summer, and now we're heading into our first winter. Um, And I know from being a salmon farmer in the winter in the northern part of BC, it can be a tough roll. Um, you know, many parts of where we farm salmon in the world are, are fairly cold climates in the winter. Much respect to people that continue to grow salmon through those uh, periods. Right. Let's hope for a, a nice calm winter for them, right? Yeah. So what's uh, what's going on right now, uh, Ian? Just can you talk briefly about, you know, the kind of winter preparations that's happening in a salmon farm right now? Yeah, you would kind of treat it like a pre-storm check. Um, So you would be uh, sending remote operated vehicles down at depth to check out anchors and ropes and, and uh, make sure the infrastructure of the, of the systems are sound. Uh, This is in the ocean farms, obviously. Um, They're all um, built to a certain specification, whether it's in Norway, Scotland, or Canada, they, they reach these engineering thresholds that they need to meet so they're solid but it's always good to do a double check before that winter time just to make sure you're good for the next six months as uh, you know it'll be stormy seasons and in some places you'll have ice coming by so uh, um, good to do this check with remote operated vehicles that boy I never got to use 20 years ago so uh, fun times for people to get to operate that equipment. Fish welfare is definitely one of the you know most important things so today's guest, um, he's an expert in fish uh, welfare, and he's going to talk to us about that. But first, are you ready for the trivia, Ian? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Lay it on. So it's quick and easy. Salmon are considered as keystone species. Is that true or false? All right. We'll answer that at the end of the podcast. Look forward to that. Let me uh, get right to it. I'm I'm uh, very excited here. We We talked about fish welfare right off the bat when we started talking about what episodes we would do. It's something that salmon farmers and aquaculture producers have never shied away from. Um, it's it's an important part of their business, and, uh, and I'm happy to have a, a nice free-flowing conversation today with Dr. Jimmy Turnbull. We're going to call him Jimmy for the uh, episode, and uh, he is a professor at the Institute of Aquaculture, University of Stirling in Scotland. He became a veterinarian in 1980 and worked for six years in mixed large animal practice before moving to specialize in aquaculture in the mid-1980s. He completed a Master of Science in Aquatic Veterinary Studies and a PhD in Salmon Health Management. He has worked as a health advisor to Scottish fish farms and spent nearly 10 years working as a consultant on behalf of the Institute of Aquaculture, mostly in Asian aquaculture. And his research is related to understanding determinants of health and welfare in farmed aquatic populations and translating that understanding into improved farming practices. So, Jimmy, welcome to our program. Thank you very much for having me on. Wonderful. Yeah, really excited to uh, talk to you. A wealth of knowledge, I know. So can you just, uh, that was a brief introduction, but can you just for our listeners and for myself and Marilyn, just give us a little more of, of why your interest in aquaculture and fish welfare? Well, aquaculture, I, I was brought up in a, in a house which was 
within stone's stone throwing distance of the the sea and was always interested in the sea but i trained as a vet and then i i managed luckily to combine both the veterinary side of things and the interest in things aquatic uh, moving into aquaculture when i did my phd it was on a condition fin rot in freshwater salmon and at that time they thought it was a bacterial infection but it turned out to be a behavioral problem and this was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And so I started working on behavior of farm salmon. And then in the early 90s, mid 90s, people started to talk about fish welfare for the first time. And they started, you know, people started to be interested in it and being concerned about it. And there were a lot of links between behavior and welfare. And so I shifted my focus from behavior specifically into welfare and I've been doing that ever since. I've had active research since that time, been involved in lots of different uh, some accreditation schemes, different initiatives, and and just recently um, in in developing some training materials with with Merck Aquaculture, uh, the Aquacare three hundred and sixty five program. Right. I I think to set the stage for our discussion today, there's been a lot of talk about salmon welfare in in fish farming and and the term sentient, you know, has come up. Could you just uh, give our listeners a little bit of of an overview what sentient mean and how that applies to fish? Yeah, sentience is a it's a difficult concept. It's been around for a very, very long time since the 1600s, but it's uh, it means the ability to experience sensation or feelings. So that can either be positive or negative sensations or feelings. And in order to do that, an animal or a being has to have some sort of mental complexity, enough complexity in the brain to experience these sensations or feelings. But it's been demonstrated that a lot of animals um, are sentient. They have the ability to, uh, to, to experience these positive and negative feelings. Um, that certainly includes fish and it even includes some crustaceans, some invertebrates. Um, some people think that or have suggested in the past that um, more simplistic animals or animals that are not as complex um, maybe don't suffer as bad as more complicated animals. But I think we all know that as babies develop, they, they're maybe not as sophisticated and complicated when they start out, but they certainly still have a capacity to suffer. So I think we have to be conscious that uh, even quite simplistic animals can have the capacity to suffer. And, and this leads on to the whole argument where we're no longer trying to prevent cruelty. We're now trying to give the animals that are under our care a good life or positive experiences. Yeah, and we'll, we'll certainly, coming up, we'll have a question about exactly what that is, kind of what are the key um, good life aspects that you, you want to provide a fish. Now, I, I've spent my whole career in aquaculture and, and, uh, you know, the focus has been on, on fish welfare in, in salmon aquaculture specifically. And I'm not a commercial fisherman and, and I don't sport fish, but, but I do see that there seems to be to me quite a discussion around aquaculture, maybe less so around fish welfare in commercial fisheries and, and even sport fishing as well. Um, now you probably have a better, global view of that. Am, am I wrong to assume that? Do we treat fisheries and aquaculture differently when it comes to fish welfare? The pattern's very variable. There's a lot of patchiness to the pattern and, and how well we look after the welfare of fish. Um, 
In some parts of aquaculture, like salmon aquaculture, the welfare standards are extremely high. I mean, they stand up well compared with any form of terrestrial farming and sometimes better in, in some cases. Um, but there are some types of aquaculture, especially some of the more traditional types of aquaculture, where the welfare of the fish is not great. Um, as far as wild fisheries is concerned, by and large, there's very little concern for the welfare of the animals. They're, they're just treated like a commodity. They're not really treated like sentient animals at all. Um, however, even there, there are some examples where people really go to a lot of trouble to, to do the best by the animals. And, and you you know, interestingly, you, you mentioned sport fisheries. Actually, that's also a patchy picture. But in some places like Germany, you're not actually allowed, kids are not allowed to go out and catch fish unless they've had a training course on how to humanely dispatch them. Um, so there are, and we're seeing increasingly in, in fisheries where people are encouraged to capture and release. There's a lot of training materials out there now about how to do that more humanely. So, yeah, commercial capture fisheries, not great, really. But um, even there, there are one or two good examples. So aquaculture, a uh, big part of it is farming in sea, but there's also, you know, a big push around uh, developments around, you know, land-based farming. So how does fish welfare compare to, you know, land-based farms? It's not a particularly easy one to just generalize about the two systems. In the sea, there's a lot of things that are difficult to control. Um, your subject, you'd, Ian was talking at the start about preparing for winter, you know, the storms coming through. There's nothing you can do about that. Um, in the summer, water temperatures are out with your control. You get blooms of plankton and sometimes jellyfish and different things coming through that, that are very difficult to control. Um, and, and some of the, 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 the pests, the parasites that are natural to wild salmon but can also come on to the farm fish um, are difficult to control in the sea. On the land, you have... A better control of the water quality it's um, and the things in it so you you don't get problems with uh, jellyfish coming through or such things you don't get problems with storms but the system is everything has to be managed very carefully and therefore the 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 whole system is is more complex and as complexity increases then it becomes more vulnerable to failures so you need very sophisticated checks and balances on these either the the pump ashore systems where you take the water from the sea put it through a tank and back out or the recirculation systems where you use it over and over and some of these systems are incredibly complicated and and really need a, a great deal of sophistication to monitor them make sure they work properly and and how would that compare to terrestrial land animals? Then are there very are there similarities in how we approach welfare? And I'm thinking off the top of my head, you know, kind of pest management, um, predator management as well. All these things that that might cross over to fish or land animals. Am, am I am I right or just off? No, I, I, you're exactly right. And you you picked two great examples, really really good examples there. So. Uh, and the predators, predator management is is a is a massive problem. It's a huge problem. It doesn't matter whether you've got a cattle ranch or you've got a or you've got a, a salmon farm. Whether it's a sea lion coming up to a salmon farm or or mountain lion coming up to a, a, a up to a cattle ranch, it's a very complicated ethical issue. 
um, you know, you're trying to find a solution which protects both the wild animals and also the farmed animals. In aquaculture systems, the general public are less concerned about the fish um, than they might be about the, the mammals that could be uh, predating on them. Um, I, I think if anybody's ever been to a fish farm that suffered from an attack from a seal or something like that, they would realise that it really is quite dreadful for the farmed fish. But I think that's that's an example where the sort of approaches which are thought about and have to be used both in terrestrial systems and in aquaculture systems are very similar. But there's no great solution. There's no one good answer for it. Uh, when we think about pests, they, they often or almost invariably come from the natural environment. They're things that are there anyway. And they've got a natural life cycle in wild animals and they just happen to switch over to the farmed population. And in that case, both in terrestrial farm aquaculture systems to stop them getting in. And if they do get in, you try to detect them as quickly as possible and eliminate them as quickly as possible. So it's in both cases, it's an integrated pest management system you've got to employ to control these things successfully. Now you, you mentioned kind of the approach to uh, animal welfare, fish welfare on, on a salmon farm. Just wondering then, how would you describe the approach on salmon farms or aquaculture farms? And, and do all regions where, you know, we farm south of the equator and north of the equator kind of approach it the same? And I'm thinking because I have experience in Canada and Scotland, we have the RSPC, uh, RSPCA uh, Atlantic Salmon Guide um, that kind of guides, uh, you know, what we do. And then in Canada, there's the National Farm Animal Care Council. That's the code of practice there. So, is it similar wherever we go around the globe or is it different regionally? Most of my experience is in, is in the UK or in, in Canada to, to a lesser extent or in Norway. Um, I don't have much experience of Chile, a little experience of Tasmania. Um, yes, I, I think it is similar around the world. I think certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, there's a lot of similarities. And you said something right at the start about um, farmers being upfront about welfare concerns or words to that effect. And as I say, I've been working in this area since the, the mid-90s and, and I've hardly ever, in fact, I don't think I have met a salmon farmer or a trout farmer that isn't concerned for the welfare of the fish. Um, and they're not only concerned, they're usually more concerned than the public. You know, so it, this is... The care, taking care of the welfare of the farm fish is not something the industry has been shoved into. It's something the industry is really concerned about. Um, and you mentioned the RSPCA, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. It's a very old society in the UK. It's, it's been around. In fact, it was in existence before a police force. So it's it's been there a long time. Um, it was initially concerned mostly with draft animals, you know, with horses and donkeys and things. But they have these standards for farmed animals and they've got standards which are purely welfare standards for um, farmed salmon and farmed trout. And those standards have been around for a while now, probably 25 years, just over 25 years. And they have been used as the basis for schemes in, in well, nearly all of the Scottish industry is, uh, is accredited according to the, these standards. 
but they've been used in Norway as the basis for some of their standards, and they've been used in a lot of the standards that are used in Canada um, and Australia. Um, so, uh, and it's not that the RSPCA had something special that was unique. They were just quite sensible standards that everybody agreed to. So that there's probably a degree of copying, and then there's also a degree of evolving in the same direction. I've I've got to share my experience when I read the the RSPCA standard, and uh, um, there's a section for those that don't know. A big section, of course, is around harvesting and around humane harvesting. Um, uh, in Norway, I think they call it slaughter. I prefer the the term harvesting. Um, <laughs> it talks about having a backup, and it mentions that uh, you know you should have a priest as as a backup. And I didn't know what they were referring to. <laughs> I, I thought I pictured an old fellow with a beard and a robe standing by soaking wet on a boat just in case something happened, not knowing that it is what we refer to in Canada as the bonker, um, <laughs> much, much less religious. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was funny the first time I read it. So, so, so thanks. And when it comes to the R RSPCA, it's, it's the five freedoms that they build their kind of... Uh, um, guide around and and let me just read them here. I've I've got them written down. It's the need for a suitable environment. It's the need for a suitable diet. Uh, the needs to be able to exhibit normal behaviors. The need to be housed with or apart from other animals. And the need to be protected from pain, suffering, injury, and disease. Does that still cover it? Knowing today what we know about sentient animals and fish. I've just got to say that. Um... The word you use for the thing for dispatching a fish doesn't translate well the other direction either. That means something different to us. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I got, I got to Google it now. I, I'm not sure what you mean. <laughs> it's probably not appropriate for this, but anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so there's been a there's been a movement when when I was at vet college, animal well animal welfare was all about or animal behavior was all very much mechanistic and it was about, you know, whatever you do, don't be anthropomorphic and all this sort of stuff. At that stage, we, it was all about avoiding cruelty. And then we sort of progressed from that to trying to take care of the animals. And now we're talking about trying to give them a good life for a life worth living, positive experiences, assuming that, you know, based on this sentience idea. And actually, the five freedoms are pretty good. I, I mean, there's a, they're pretty sensible. I mean, any kind of sensible person would come up with something similar, I think. But they don't really address the issue of positive experience. It's all about avoiding negatives. There's nothing in there about, you know, providing something positive. And soon after the five freedoms were developed by uh, the RSPCA, David Meller and his co-workers came up with the five domains, which sort of match across its nutrition, environment, health, behavioral interactions, mental state or experiences. But it sort of encapsulates this whole idea of um, uh, the experience of the animal, not just the conditions under which it's kept. I think the problem with both the five freedoms and the the five domains, in fact, there was a there's a journal called Animal Welfare, and they had a review article on this last month, and they were they were talking about how 
these are great in principle, but actually don't really help you to either monitor or to control welfare very well. You, you need much more depth in there. So yeah, as as a guiding principle, super. They're, they're still valid, but you need more than that to to actually make things work. And, and as you know, good animal welfare only results from getting everything right, not just from getting some things right. You know, you, you, so you need the complete package to, to to give the the animals the welfare that the, the consumers and the retailers are demanding and, and that the farmers want to give them. Who would typically have the oversight to ensure fish welfare on, on farms? That's, that, that's a good question. Actually, in Norway, the UK and Canada, there are usually people who are on the staff of the farms who are specifically responsible for the welfare of the animals. Now, this might be during transportation or, you know, at harvest or, you know, controlling a specific event. But actually, in some farms, there's people who have responsibility for looking over the whole the whole process. But because the demand to demonstrate good welfare in the farmed animals is so strong from the value chain from processors, retailers and consumers, there's also a lot of accreditation schemes like the RSPCA assured scheme, but there's many others um, which specifically require that there's an auditable trail demonstrating good welfare on, on, on the farms. Um, the two things work very closely together because an audit trail only looks back the way, whereas the farmers have to control things on a daily basis and react now. You know, they, they have to solve the problems just now. They don't have to wait until tomorrow or the day after. So the, the accreditation schemes and and the, the, the sort of the the investment and the, the training that the farmers have worked well together. What we don't really have for fish welfare is much in the way of legislation. Um, there is some legislation in Europe and the UK which covers fish welfare, but it's very limited compared with that which is available for terrestrial animals. Different jurisdictions would probably have different regulations. Is that part of a compliance then, or is it more of, you know, salmon farmers are doing it because it's the right thing to do, or is it more of a compliance? Uh, in in the UK, there is the the Code of Good Conduct for Finfish Aquaculture, which is a it's an independently audited scheme, but it's 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 a voluntary scheme that the industry signs up to 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 do things properly. Um, the RSPCA assured in in Scotland, virtually the whole industry is assured to those standards, and there is no other livestock farming system that is all. A, entirely accredited to a welfare standard. So you could honestly say that the welfare of farmed salmon in Scotland has the highest demonstrable welfare standards of any farmed animal because everybody's doing it according to these very rigorous standards. But I'm speaking from my experience, which is specifically in Scotland, but certainly I know in Canada, there's a, you know, there's a great deal of effort goes into this and there's, there's, um, uh, there's the mechanisms there to ensure the good welfare, and there's the same in Norway as well. Thanks, uh, Jimmy. Very interesting. Now, my my favorite topic, communications, um, and uh, the communications of very technical issues or emotional issues, of which this probably crosses over both of those. 
Um, how do you feel that that uh, salmon welfare, specifically on farms, is communicated through mainstream media? And and I should add, you know, I, I would think the general public, if they're reading the headlines, would see it through the lens of a person that may take a photo or an image of the one fish on the site that doesn't look you know, in good condition, and it makes it on the front page, and that is the perspective. It doesn't represent the population of the fish swimming in the pen, but that's what the person gets to see because that makes kind of shock headlines. Uh, how can we communicate this better? Are we communicating as well as we can? I, I think the, the industry, and I, 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 not only the producers, but the retailers and, you know, the, the, the whole value chain, a lot of time and effort into communicating all the excellent work they do to look after the welfare of their, their fish. And they do it honestly and they do it transparently. And they have to do that, being legitimate businesses, but the critics don't. <laughs> and often, well, there are some people who are interested in improving the welfare of the farm fish. They're actually interested in, in a dialogue and a debate about how can we make things better for the farm fish. But there's a lot of NGOs out there who have a completely different agenda. Their agenda is abolitionist. They've got um, some sort of emotional or, or um, moral objection to the farming of fish, and they just want to stop it. And they are not constrained by truth or transparency. Um, a lot of their arguments are either completely outdated or completely invented. And, and it's, a, it's a real difficult, it's, a, it's a, not a level playing field. The, the industry is not playing a, a fair game. The, the, these sensationalist campaigns that the, the critics put into the media are, are very difficult to combat. You, Ian, you know this probably a lot better than I do, but when you get these emotive campaigns, there's no point in countering them with facts because facts don't counter emotion. They're not an effective way of countering emotion. Um, I think the industry is doing a good job and, you know, you, your efforts, the, the efforts you're making in these podcasts is part of that. But I think one thing that, that the industry has, has sometimes done well and sometimes not done so well is to stick to a plan. You can't just react to every little media hysterics that that, that comes out or you end up flip-flopping and, and you end up producing a very a, a very garbled and incoherent message. I think that the industry has improved the welfare of the fish dramatically over the last 30 years by sticking to clear principles and keeping to work at it. And I think that's what the industry has to do. Stick on message and just keep on trying to be honest and transparent. And and hopefully people will see through some of these these less robust criticisms. Appreciate the uh, the guidance uh, noted. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid that's very much teaching my grandmother saw eggs, but this is your job. I, I'm I'm just looking from the outside. Absolutely, we're uh, we're coming up to the end here. But Marilyn, you I think you have a, another question. Yeah. So just as the last question, what you know, looking to the future, what challenges do you think? The, the industry needs to address for the future of uh, fish welfare? Depends how long you've got. There's lots of them. I, I think we touched on one already, which is the interaction between farmed animals and wild predators. 
Um, there's no easy answer to that in the aquatic environment. And it's, I think it's it, it's a real difficult one. And it's going to need a lot of public debate to solve that one out. Um, there are some other things, long-standing problems that we don't have good solutions to. Like people who haven't been on a fish farm, it's difficult to understand how large the cages and the farms are. And if you get one individual sick fish in that population, every population, doesn't matter whether it's humans or fish, you get enough and you'll get some sick individuals. But it can be very difficult to get a sick individual out of a cage. It may look bad, but when you try and catch it, it swims away. And and the only way you can do it is by crowding large numbers of fish and stressing them all. And so we don't have a good answer for this getting out those sick individuals. I, I think there's there's some other interest. Everybody, everybody at the moment is talking about AI. But aquaculture and salmon farming is almost the definition of big data. It produces an enormous amount of information on the animals, the environment, the feeding, all sorts of things. So much information that it's difficult to combine, combine that information and, and utilize it in real time. And I think in the future, what we may see is some of these AI systems producing reports or, or turning the data into something that people can use in real time to, to monitor and, and not only react to, but also prevent problems happening. I could probably go on for quite a while, but I'm, I think we're getting near time here. And I think we've, we're starting to see some of the uh, applications of AI in salmon farming and, you know, it will help so solve some of the industry's biggest challenges. You, you mentioned trying to humanely remove a, a fish that may be doing poorly. I don't know many, how, how many hours I've wasted on a salmon farm, slowly untying the bird net, grabbing my dip net. It's been sitting there the whole time. And when I lower the dip net, it swims away at 100 miles an hour. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if we could solve that one, that would that would have saved me hours twenty years yeah. ago. And you know, the, and and as you said, you know, these individual fish are the ones that somebody gets a photograph and then says, "Oh, look how terrible salmon farmers are." And they're not terrible; they're doing their very best. But in any population, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of animals, you're going to get the odd individual sick animal, and. We just don't have a good way of removing those animals at the moment. And that, that yeah. But yeah. Some okay. people are talking about some options there, but nothing that we can actually use. And like you, I've spent a lot of time trying to catch these fish unsuccessfully. Well, hopefully there's some entrepreneur listening to this podcast thinking, you know what, that sounds like an easy solve. I'll take that on. So, so please, well, someone take that on. That, that that would that would do a lot of good for their karma because it, it would make the salmon farmers very happy and it would also uh, stop fish from suffering. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Jimmy, thank you very much for for spending your time with us. I, I think Marilyn, we have a uh, a trivia question to answer. Is that correct? Yes. So. Salmon are considered keystone species, true or false? I guess just to set like just a definition, the keystone species are species that have a big impact on an ecosystem and their absence will, you know, change an ecosystem drastically. So salmon are considered keystone species, true or false, uh, Jimmy? I would say 
well, there's lots of species of salmon, but in your part of the world, world in, in British Columbia, the, the wild Pacific salmon are definitely a keynote species, without a doubt. And not only a keynote species in the aquatic environment, but also a keynote species, keystone species for the terrestrial environment, bringing nutrients up the rivers and into the forests. Yes, of course you're correct. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy, again for, for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. Wonderful talking with you, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks very much. It's very nice to meet you both. Thank you very much for having me on. You've been listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, brought to you by Aquaculture North America. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species.